Happening now, we want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 181 for June 17th, 2020. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the fabulous University of Montana campus here in lovely Missoula, Montana. And joining me tonight, as always, good evening, Dr. West Fryer. How are you tonight? Well, Jason, I have been leading a Minecraft camp for students, uh, which elementary kids as the campers. Uh, we've actually had 26 kids uh, in Minecraft every every day from 10 to 12 o'clock. <clears throat> but for the previous two weeks, I've had um, basically 12 middle school and high schoolers building and creating this incredible world. And so anyway, we've we've had a, quite an experience. <laughs> I'm not going to go into all the details, but let me say that part of what we've we've lived in is not only seeing the wonderful side of technology and the incredible creativity, and I've probably never done anything as a teacher that so much like puts me in the learner's seat where the the kids, especially my, I've got a lot of 11th graders that are they're Rachel's friends. They know so much and so much more than I do. But at the same time, it has really dramatized how important supervision is um, for some of our younger students. And it's just it's been really, really positive and good. So I am the technology integration and innovation specialist. I'm wearing my logo shirt here at the Cassidy School. Um, and I'm uh, very thankful to have an opportunity to get paid to play Minecraft in, in the week, month of June. But uh, we've got this is our first week, actually, of camps back. You know, Oklahoma, we're on the fast track to open up, baby. Uh, we got a little uh, rally, I think, happening up the road on Saturday that's going to be interesting, which we won't talk a lot about. But uh, we are, you know, authorized to open up summer camps and all these kinds of things. So my wife um, has had nine kids with her Adventures in Coding camp for first and second graders. Um, and she's fa very thankful, by the way, for the chance, you know, to figure out what a new normal looks like face to face with social distancing and when to have the mask on and, and all these different things. Uh, but I have been able to do a virtual camp. So the kids are all at home and been providing tech support to families. And we've got a student in Florida, one in Missouri, and then, you know, the rest of our, our campers are here locally. So excited to be here with you tonight. And as we get going, I shall be rapidly transferring a few of my, my articles over. Because what are we going to talk about, Jason? Am I going to, you know, just tell stories about uh, my workday? Is that what we do? Sadly, we have other things on the agenda. And we've got several topics we'll probably go over tonight. Uh, those that have listened to the show before know that Wes and I rarely get to the whole list. And if you're interested in seeing what else was on our mind this week, you can go to our website, edtechsr.com slash links, and be able to see everything that is available uh, uh, that maybe we got to or maybe we didn't. But tonight, likely on our agenda, obviously some COVID-related information. We have a couple carryover articles from last week that I think are worth uh, maybe some thinking about. A little Chrome OS news, some Android news, Apple news, Microsoft news, mobile computing, an interesting piece of, of, of tidbit from the Google world. Lots of interesting things going on in social media. We also have some privacy articles, and then it, it, and actually a follow-up article, really great article from yesterday's Verge that I think uh, Dr. Fryer will be interested in. I'm going to go and get started tonight. Uh, I want to make sure and get, there are a lot of Chrome OS things I've been wanting to get to the last couple of weeks, but because of larger issues in our culture and society, those news pieces have taken a lower priority, and I definitely want to get to them tonight. So 
First, um, maybe let's talk a little bit about the state of Chrome OS. And there's two interesting articles that I think are worth your time. First, uh, Chrome Unbox reports on May 25th that Krita, K-R-I-T-A, is a uh, kind of a, a desktop-style app that's now available uh, in the, the App Store, the Play Store, on Chrome OS that is a desktop class Android app. And I did download it uh, when this was first available, and it's a, um, uh, an image modification uh, a software. I think it looked roughly like uh, the GIMP, which is the open source Photoshop clone. It also had some elements to it of vector imaging, so it'd be like uh, one of the many, many, many uh, uh, vector programs like Inkscape that's available that's open source. But the reason why this is super interesting to me is because there seems to be a lot of like desktop style or maybe you could even call them enterprise class applications. They're slowly starting to kind of creep their way into the Chrome OS universe. And as I mentioned in the past, I am mostly a full-time Chrome OS user. Uh, right now at home, I am using a Windows desktop if for no other reason than I do switch around a bit in order to keep my skills fresh on one architecture or another. I'm actually thinking about refurbishing an old Mac Pro that I have in the house, that there are some hacks you can do to make it a little more modern and just as fast as a lot of kind of consumer-level iMacs. But uh, on the Chromos architecture, there seems to be a lot of energy around getting full apps. And the reason why I want to mention this about Krita is because there was another interesting article in yesterday's Verge that uh, Google is working to bring Microsoft Office and other Windows apps to Chromebooks via a platform called Parallels, which is a long-time virtualization software suite, uh, initially very popular on the Mac side, now both Mac and PC, and apparently on Chrome OS as well. And... Uh, what's interesting about this is not, it's not that the consumer can download, uh, parallels and then suddenly, um, uh, 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 you can start downloading random Windows apps and installing random Windows apps, but rather, uh, there's a new feature set that's going to be available to Chrome Enterprise customers where you can push out installs of Microsoft Office, full Microsoft Office, uh, Windows style Microsoft Office on uh, uh, the Chrome operating system. And so a lot of interesting things going on in the Chrome architecture world. And I know, Wes, you've owned a Chromebook. You guys have had family Chromebooks. You've used them a bit in your enterprise at school. Um, does anything about the full desktop app experience, does that change your view on Chromebooks at all? Well, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't. It's going to be difficult for articles to change my views at this point, you know. But uh, hello, Peggy. Um, it's the continued march of the Chrome experience to basically take care of computing needs. You know, there's just more and more that you can do. It's not not only the Chromebook and the processor and, and that maturity, uh, but it's also the web and anyway, just the the, the technologies. Sure. Um, so if uh, if you're not um, at least experimenting with the Chrome world as a school educational technologist, I think that you are, you're missing out on some opportunities. I just, it's going to be super interesting to see what, how we shift from emergency remote learning 
uh, which I think was what we've been in the last three three months, uh, <clears throat> to whatever this new hybrid is going to be, this new normal. Um, you know, the security aspects, the management aspects from an IT standpoint. Our son just uh, got his second laptop today for work. Uh, he had gone down to Houston, whatever, the week before last and and picked up a loaner laptop from NASA. And then this is a, a, a laptop from his uh, actual company that's a contractor. Um you know, and it and took a while to get that, but it's anyway, from a man, when you've managed different devices and then you have an opportunity to manage Chrome, it really is a different, different game. So I'm glad to hear this. What I hear from these articles is it's the continued march of Chrome to be able to do more and more of what folks need to do to be productive and, uh, you know, use, use their computers uh, efficiently and fully. So right. it's exciting. I would add a couple of things about this entirely from my my vantage point as a almost full-time Chrome OS user. The one downfall here, and there was very little uh, detail about how this might look, but uh, the thing that I would be concerned about is, is file management. And that's still a real problem in the Chrome OS world. Not that Chrome OS has a problem, because Chrome OS itself, if you're on the web, uh, the file manager, which takes you to Google Drive, works quite quite well. And in fact, uh, for me, is one of the reasons why I love that architecture is because, you know, you are working in Google Drive. And if, you know, your computer dies, or if you lose your computer, or it's stolen, or it explodes, or whatever, you can literally, you know, jump to Staples, pick up a, a, a Chrome operating system device, a, a Chromebook device, and be back to normal within 10 minutes of opening the box. And that's something that's, that's unparalleled anywhere else in, in the computer universe. But that comes at a cost because Android apps have problems going into uh, that file system. It's wonky, and oftentimes you can't access the same files. And I know there's been a lot of attention around Linux apps being installed. There's lots of great industrial Linux apps, including full office suites, uh, image uh, uh, um, processors, uh, other browsers like Firefox are available that way, and they too have problems kind of connecting into the right file system. So I'd be curious to see how that works. And then two other articles that I think are worth your read if you're interested in the in, in Chrome world. First, um, great article from Android Police on the 14th of June talking about how it's time to abandon four gigabytes as the standard for Chrome operating system Chromebooks and instead move towards eight gigabytes. Now, let me be really clear. Kevin Toffel over at About Chromebooks did call out this article and say it was it was a little bit ridiculous. But my guess is, is that Mr. Toffel uh, probably doesn't usually use a day-to-day -day driver that, that has four gigabytes to it. And I've been saying this for, well, uh, two or three years ago, I was saying don't look at the two gigabyte RAM Chromebooks, look at only at the four or more. And now I'm saying that really eight gigabytes is the way to go. And I get that I'm a power user. I oftentimes have many, many, many windows open and sometimes two or three accounts going on in the background. But I do think that it seems a little silly to me that Chrome OS devices are advertising having eight years of useful life with updates but with a four gigabyte architecture. And um, I know schools strapped for cash might want to go for, well, don't definitely don't go for two gigabyte Chromebooks, but uh, might want to go for four gigabyte Chromebooks because they're more value driven. But the bottom line is, is that if you're going to be a power user, and this is whether you're a student or a, a faculty member or support staff, that eight gigabytes really should be the standard. And that article makes that, that argument. I'm glad to hear that's the case. 
And then last, a great Chrome Unboxed article from June 8th that talks about uh, a refresh of the so-called Chromebook X360. This is something that I have purchased myself. Uh, this is the uh, uh, standard we have at my organization. We have uh, uh, about a half dozen remote workers that are in the field with part-time positions at the Digital Academy as part of our Ed Ready program. And we did purchase these Chromebooks. They have i3 chips in them, 8 gigs of RAM, 64 uh, uh, gigabytes of memory. Uh, it's, it was the X360. I love this Chromebook. Uh, it's, it's an excellent Chromebook. Uh, I picked this up used actually on eBay for a song because of, as I've talked about in the past, I think that, that used dealers oftentimes vastly undervalue Chromebooks, premium Chromebooks, uh, when sold on the secondary market. But HP has refreshed this Chromebook and, um, they are using 10th generation chips. Uh, they're keeping the same 14-inch form factor, uh, 8 gigabytes of RAM. I believe it's an i3 chip, 10th generation i3 chip. And if you are in the market for a Chromebook, especially if you're looking for something for the long haul, I could not stress more how great at least the first generation of the X360 laptop is, and Chrome Unbox seems to give it a positive piece. The one thing on there I will say that, that this one doesn't have, the new generation does, is biometrics. I believe that it has a, a fingerprint reader on it. And I can tell you that that is a pretty wonderful uh, addition for security because it makes the password go away, but also keeps your Chromebook quite secure. So all the Chrome OS news in one location. Uh, Dr. Fryer, where shall we go next? Uh, actually, I'll just I'll tag one additional Google article, um, which uh, I'm actually just putting in right now, <clears throat> and that involves Google Meet. And while Google Meet is not only Chrome OS specific, um, it is definitely recommended that when you're on a, a regular laptop, you know, we certainly recommend that you that you run it in Chrome. You don't have to. Uh, but this is from The Verge today. Google Meet arrives in Gmail for iOS and Android as a giant new tab, or actually that was yesterday, June 16th. And so <clears throat> I'm very glad to see this. You know, Zoom probably had the most publicity, a lot of it negative, when we went to remote learning and shelter at home and everything with, with COVID in March and April. Uh, our school, uh, along with a number of other schools that are G Suite uh, schools, you know, has used Google Meet as a primary video conferencing platform. We also used GoToMeeting a lot because we happened to have Jive phones and Jive was bought by GoTo and we had these licenses. And so, you know, we've done some other things and we've had folks using Zoom as well. <clears throat> but uh, Google Meet is continuing to improve and they did roll it out as a free uh, video conferencing option for all consumers. So if you have a consumer account, you know, for a while you had to be on an enterprise to, to be able to use Google Meet. And so now, um, one of the things they, they changed, I think probably in May, it was late in the year, uh, like Zoom, if you've installed the plugin for Zoom in your calendar, you got this really nice, large, you know, blue rectangle, make it a Zoom meeting. And so Google did the same thing for the Hangouts, which just made it a little more noticeable. Uh, but now this is coming to the Gmail app and, you know, Google's in increasing the visibility. I would say that video conferencing in the age of COVID has become, you know, like the new normal and it's become every bit as important and essential an app as your email, as your calendar, you know? And so that's why as we look at that as a school, what, you know, platforms do we recommend? What do we support? Is there anything prohibited? All of those things are, 
you know, important to consider in terms of the experience that you're providing to students and teachers and the ability of the school to be able to support them. So I am very excited to see Google's continued development of Google Meet. I think this is is wonderful. Uh, there's a there's a ton of students and teachers around the world that rely every day on Google and it is interesting to see what you get when you pay more. And that's something I don't, I don't know what the date on that is, but Google made like the next tier up of, of Google apps for the enterprise free during COVID, which included recording. That's really important. Um, we had a policy of just recording all of the, you know, the classes that we did with students. And it wasn't only to provide an opportunity uh, to be able to share a link if somebody was absent and couldn't be there live, but it's also a protection for the teacher and, you know, different things happen and there's different layers to that. So I, if anybody out there listening to the show, and this is obviously a Google search that I can do that I haven't in a while, I'd love to know, uh, if Google has made that announcement yet, if they're going to be discontinuing that free tier, um, because I think that, you know, recording video conferences is important, but I also think the integration that they do is absolutely fantastic. You know, when you attach uh, Google Meet to your calendar, it is immediately when it's uh, when the recording is done, it automatically goes into that calendar event. Uh, we've been using Google Meet as a video conferencing platform for our Minecraft camp this week. And so <clears throat> it's actually worked out great to have this room available and we have to tell kids to mute mics and not just give us all their dialogue as, you know, 26 of us together are, are in Minecraft. But um, it's been a really good platform for that. And I really like the fact that, you know, now you can, as the organizer, you know, mute individual students and it's, it doesn't have all the features of Zoom, but it's getting better. So. Yay, Google. Good news. Yep. And a couple other notes about Google Meet. So I have access. Um, I, I'm on a university campus that happens happens to have a site-wide license to Zoom. And so I have access to a Zoom room. But our our microcosm inside that organization utilizes Google Apps uh, or the, I'm sorry, Google Suite for education. And I have to say, I did move to Zoom when it was available. I like Zoom. I think Zoom is a nice industrial uh, video conference platform. It's simple. It's easy to use. It has some unique features like the ability to put students in, in, or I'm sorry, participants in individual rooms. That's super great. But since there has been all this energy around kind of upping the game of all of these uh, video conference platforms, the same is true of Teams as well, I have tried to use uh, Google Meets more in order to you know, be aware of the platform. And I think it's really impressive. It's simple. It's easy to use. It lacks some of the advanced features of Zoom, but it does have some interesting things in exchange. One of my favorite uh, uh, features of Google Meets is that you can cast in Chrome, you can cast a single tab and have it broadcast the audio from that tab. So as an example, if you've ever used video conferencing technology before, you know how big of a pain in the butt it is to try to broadcast audio. The best that can happen is that from your speaker, you can put it to your microphone and then it broadcasts out and it's, it's not super great. There are some workarounds. Uh, Mac has some uh, technological, uh, hacks you can do to send audio through that channel, right? I just saw Wes smile at that notion because I'm sure he's done that before. Soundflower, do, by the way. Doing it now. Yeah. In fact. Yeah. Okay. So, but, uh, this is really easy on Google Meets. All you need to do is say, I broadcast a, a tab instead of your full screen or full browser window, and suddenly it works great. And you could broadcast YouTube video, for example. So, yeah, I think Google Meets is great. And 
The other thing to know is that the way a lot of the mainstream tech media has played this is that Microsoft with Teams and uh, Google with Meet is kind of going after Zoom, which is kind of the perceived market leader now uh, during the COVID times. And I think that this is a competitive race. And I'm glad to see so many great technologies, which were really expensive. You know, 10 years ago, video conferencing technologies were really spendy. And now they're just built in and assumed for free. Well, Zoom is expensive, though. I mean, we're we have we had quoted it. It'll be interesting to see if their pricing comes down at all. But when we were going to fully license that for our campus, um, that was look you know expensive. There may be a chance that we can be part of a consortium. Uh, we're part of this group called uh, the Malone Network uh, out of Stanford, <clears throat> and they're anyway they're they're moving their platform from Blue Jeans, which has been a platform I've I've loved and enjoyed too. Yep. Really progressive back in the day, right? Because you could you know connect yeah. with Skype, connect with Google, whatever their thing was at the time, you know, connect with multiple platforms and then everybody can be together in a three, two, three conference. Anyway, they're switching over to zoom. And so there's a chance that we might, you know, license it, but um, it's uh, it, you know, it's going to be interesting to see because that's what the tech companies were also hoping, right? Oh, you're going to try these free tools and now we gotcha, you know, and obviously there's stuff worth paying for. Please don't hear me saying that. I don't think that's the case, but it's going to be uh, challenging in some cases, uh, especially if schools and teachers have really, you know, gotten used to this idea of some of these free tools. And then if they're not free, you know, that's important to look at budget wise. The other thing I'll say about Google Meets and it and it uh, ties in with what you said about the tab is our our teachers found out that processor wise, it is less taxing on your computer to only cast a tab rather than to say cast my entire desktop. And that, you know, might not be an issue if you've got a nice video card, a, a newer computer, but depending upon, you know, what the hardware specs of your device are, video conferencing can be a, a taxing thing on your machine. Back to your idea of a video of a RAM and how much you're loading your computer with. So that's a good thing to know as well. And I actually haven't tried doing that, <clears throat> but I saw, you know, articles that to your audio point that you can, you can do that. Cause yeah, it took, it took uh, quite a bit of geekery to, to get me to the point where I can do that, you know, play, play music and, or play a video and, and have that audio go as well. So, all right. Well, I have a bit of good news. I know we're probably going to talk a little bit about tech correction and uh, maybe touch on some political uh, section 230 of the communications decency act. There may be some things to talk about, but Hey, Starlink really positive article here. Jason can run out and tell all of his rural Montana friends. Um, I put this at the bottom under the connectivity title. This is ZDNet on June 15th. SpaceX Starlink Internet prepares for beta users. Uh, we have been, you know, talking on and off about SpaceX and the good uh, possibility that rural broadband is going to be revolutionized because it's been super high latency, especially on upload. And we talked, I think, a couple weeks ago that the FCC basically didn't believe Elon Musk when he talked about this really small latency uh, prediction. But Starlink, the, the number of satellites that they're going to put on or put up is absolutely incredible. And the article says that they just on June 13th launched 58 new ones. I have not seen these yet, but <clears throat> evidently on some apps I've got, you know, uh got star walk and some other ones, you know, that lets you see when the, where the planets are and the stars, they'll show you the international space station, but also Starlink. And if you see these at night, 
it's a string of lights uh, that, you know, is crossing the sky because that's how these things are deployed. Well, now SpaceX has 540 Starlink satellites in orbit, and they only needed about 400 to provide, quote unquote, minor coverage. And they're targeting rural areas. So if we're in, as I am, a, a major metropolitan area, we're probably not going to qualify. And, and, it, and frankly, the Internet that we can get from you know, our cable modem provider, or actually AT&T is the best deal in our town. You can get gig uh, up and down uh, through, pardon me, through AT&T for less than a hundred a month. That's a good deal. Uh, but this is what just blew my mind. The initial Starlink mega constellation will have 12,000 satellites. Yes, folks, that's three zeros, but that's far from the end. In late May, SpaceX applied to the FCC to launch as many as 30,000. 30,000 satellites, my friends, with the explicit purpose of connecting the planet to high-speed connectivity, which they say is going to allow you to, you know, play play games, uh, have, have that kind of low latency. So, Jason, are you ready to dump your home there in Missoula and, and trek out to the deepest woods in Bitterroot? <laughs> knowing that soon Elon is going to bring you the connectivity you need. Well, uh, no, uh, I like living in, in uh, I guess, urban-ish Missoula, Montana. However, I cannot count uh, the, the number of folks that I know would significantly benefit by this, not the least of which is my in-laws, who live uh, just 20 minutes out of the state capital in Helena, Montana. They're in a neighborhood-ish. I mean, they have a large chunk of property that they live on, but and they have they had a DSL line. We've got some hacked-together uh, uh uh, AT&T uh, mobile solution going for them now to provide broadband-ish to their house. But, I mean, they they have uh, hundreds of, of neighbors that would love uh, access to this. But the thing I'm most excited about is that uh, my in-laws also have a cabin on the Missouri River, and it is it's not even in cell coverage. It's deep in a in a, a crevice in the earth, basically. And um, that I would love the opportunity to have uh, Netflix there for, for you know getting into the back country and then being able to turn it off, but then still have access to you know streaming media and such. But that's extraordinary, and that you know tens of thousands of of of, of satellites to provide this. I do think that, I mean, obviously in, in the article, you know, very clearly states this is not aimed at urban internet users because there's already tons of options for them. Oftentimes in, well, if you go to Seattle, you can oftentimes have your choice of five or six different types, not even just providers, many more providers, but five or six different types of internet available to you. Um, but this, this is pretty extraordinary. So I look forward to this. I think this would revolutionize states like Montana. Montana, the uh, uh, most remote of states in the United States. The only thing that's even close, really, is the state of Alaska. But Montana, lots of areas that are six-plus hours away from even a big-box store, let alone has no uh, real competitive Internet option. So I'm staying tuned. And then the other thing to note is they can sign up. You can sign them up now to be beta testers. So there's going to be a limited number of folks. Uh, they're going to send you, if you're a beta tester, basically something that looks like a UFO on a stick. <laughs> and it's supposed to, you know, uh, move itself around or whatever to do what it needs to do to optimize its, its antennas. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the beta testing is open now and apparently you can, you can put in your, uh, put in your name. There it is. All right. Well, shall we talk a little bit about uh, the tech correction? 
Sure. Um, and I think part of this is maybe let's start on the, um, let's start on the social media stuff first. So, uh, first and foremost, uh, big news. Facebook has been, uh, really at, 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 uh, a lot of news in the last week. And there's been a lot of conjecture. There's been a lot of obviously criticism. Um, there was an interesting, uh, image going around yesterday that got retweeted, uh, by many different accounts that of the top 10, uh, stories that were passed around on Facebook were all, uh, based on conservative, uh, uh, media uh, outlets. And the reason why, of course, that's interesting is because of the accusation that Facebook logarithms benefit the other side of the political spectrum. But it's clear that Mr. Zuckerberg and his crew are trying to take some action, whether it's symbolic or not, we'll leave it to you to judge. And the one that, that was announced today that's super interesting is that you are now able to turn off political advertising on Facebook if you don't want to see it. And um, this is something that that's actually kind of always been available. My understanding is that, there, that the tool set has been dramatically enhanced. But if you see an ad, you can go through a series of clicks, either on the mobile app or on the desktop, and say, don't show me this category of ads anymore and political ads being all of one category will be included in that and I guess it is an interesting start to this process and to be honest I don't want to see political ads either political advertising does very little to me as a voter I will say I I generally don't use political advertising I, I prefer other means of getting information about candidates but the reason why I think this is interesting is because uh, you may remember, we've talked about this several times on the show, that that's political advertising is not really the problem on Facebook, right? The problem on Facebook, the problem on something like YouTube is that it's, it's groups that are the problem. It is, uh, uh, we talked about this when the big, uh, uh, the big, uh, investigation was out about the internet research agency in, in Russia that they would create groups or they would buy groups that had, uh, otherwise non-political means, things like pro USA or support vets or even things at, as, as seemingly as innocent as gardener clubs and they would start to nudge political posts into there and then oftentimes encourage people to access then more and more radicalized, whether it was pushing to the left or pushing to the right, it really was pretty equal opportunity. And um, I'm glad to see Facebook take this this, this step because I think having uh, access over that is important. I know I personally will give feedback about ads when I utilize Facebook. Uh, I think a couple of years ago that I thought was funny and also a little weird is there was this uh, process where uh, uh, many people were seeing ads for, they called them like dress sweats, right? There were sweats that looked like real pants. And I, I still don't understand why I'm the, I'm the target of that, right? Like I, you know, I'm not going to wear sweats to work, but the, the bottom line is that I was getting those, I was sick of seeing those ads. And so I said, please don't show me this ad anymore. And in fact, I think I want, I, I, if I remember correctly, I also said, I don't want to see clothing and lifestyle ads. It's just not something I'm interested in. Show me tech ads. That's fine. But, uh, those ads I wasn't interested in. So I guess, Wes, would you be interested in eliminating the political advertising on Facebook or is that not a, a step you would take as a Facebook user? Well, it depends. I think it depends on what Facebook thinks it knows about me and what it's showing me. And, um, you know, generally I'm not wanting to have my, my Facebook feed flooded with, with politics. On the other hand, I do think 
part of our challenge today and moving forward is learning how to have civil discourse, both with folks that we're connected to, those we work with, our families, all, you know, everybody. So um, maybe. Uh, I think it is interesting. I think it is, is uh, you know, interesting. They're, they're handing that power to the user because, of course, what Facebook and Twitter and everybody want to avoid is regulation, right? They want to basically, I think, continue the uh, we can self-regulate, we'll clean up our act, no need to get involved, Congress. Um, so, yeah, I'm not not super, you know, concerned about that, but uh, I think it's I think it's probably positive. Um, one of the articles I put there under the social media heading, uh, a couple of them. Uh, let's go to this uh, Apple Insider article. This is from today, June 17th. Um, Justice Department plans to curb Section 230 protections for internet firms. And to give this a little bit of context, we talked about this on the show a couple weeks ago. Um, President Trump got upset that uh, Twitter put a clarifying, you know, um, addition by one of his tweets. Didn't censor it, but, you know, said, you know, basically check, check your facts, check your information, uh, you know, next to something that that he had tweeted. And so he, uh, you know. I'm going to try to just be real nice and pick pick nice words uh, and, and try to anyway. Uh, he he made an executive order, and his executive order was was basically uh, indicating his desire for the tech companies to not be uh, immune from liability. And in general, this is part of of uh, some campaigning and uh, really I, I would term it kind of a broken record. We're hearing it over and over again that conservative voices are being censored and these tech companies have huge power and they've just got to be shut down. So it's interesting um, what is coming out. And I've got another article that's about an actual proposed legislation. Section 230 is part of the Communications Decency Act, I think of 1996. And this was really early days for the internet, right? And it is it has given historically broad liability protection for the internet companies to not be responsible for the content that they have. <clears throat> but, um, you know, they, they, they have wide latitude to, uh, they're not, I mean, when people talk about free speech, they're not realizing like that's the government talking about, re- you know, regulating free speech. The, the companies really have the right to decide what they're going to do on their platforms in terms of their community standards, et cetera. So this article uh, talks about how the Justice Department is uh, wanting Internet firms basically to, uh, you know, face face liability. And part of it's interesting, too. It says there's a bipartisan investigation already ongoing, which was written on whether Section 230 facilitates online child abuse. Um, But these are this is like a different Department of Justice initiative. I think that's coming from from the president. Uh, but there are definitely issues here. Right. And we've we've talked about there was a horrific yet also super important New York Times uh, multi-part um, series of articles. And I think this was near the end of last year. It was in December. But like the explosion of online child pornography and it's just not child pornography. It's just it's horrific stuff you don't even want to talk about and say uh, there's more of that than ever before. And we're woefully underfunding our, um, you know, FCC and and uh, different agencies and law enforcement to to deal with this. So these are really important conversations. Yes, some of them have to do with politics, 
but they also have to do with other issues as well. And there's an underlying thing that's happened with the explosion of social media, et cetera. Oh, and I, and I should put this in there. Not that there's a lot of people doing this, but you know, there is an alternative to Twitter today that's open source that's called Mastodon. And, uh, I am on, just remember this. I'm on, uh, mastodon.cloud. Like email, Mastodon is a federated and open source, um, platform like, like email. So anybody can run their own, their own email server, right? And so <clears throat> anybody can run their own Mastodon account and they can talk to each other. Well, Mastodon now says that they're going away. And I think that's just what I'm on. Um, that, oh, okay. Huh. Yeah, they were just going to shut down. Oh, this is interesting. They're going to transfer now to another company. What they said, and I think I took a screenshot of this, was that uh, basically fearing pending legislation and liability um, that they were going to face for their content, they were just going to shut down at the end of June. And I was like, oh, man, I'm going to have to find another place to, you know, I haven't logged into Macedon for uh, probably a couple months. So anyway, there's a lot there, Jason. What is your prediction as you look into the crystal ball? Um, because obviously the, the I don't think the executive branch passes laws, right? Isn't that something Congress does? So how's all this going to shake out? Well, I mean, part of the part of the challenge of President Trump's strategy of of, of trying to to take action by executive orders is that it's a very limited strategy because day one of a president of, of the other party and they could just reverse uh, those decisions. And, and oftentimes for those that are not political geeks and I former government teacher here, uh, what happens on, on day one of a new administration of the art other party is that there is a series of documents that are signed at noon, uh, on inauguration day. Um, and there, there are dozens and I, and I think it may even be up to hundreds of issues that are, are kind of flip from one side of the issue to the other, uh, with presence of, of the other party. And, that's something that is a, a, a kind of a well. In the last forty years, that's become a, a real issue. Everything from the um, uh, the global the global gag rule regarding public health uh, 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 worldwide to various politically charged issues that that stay in the executive uh, uh, the executive branch's uh, purview because Congress won't touch them. And that kind of stuff is 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 important to remember here. But you know, I I do. I'm not entirely sure, and we've talked about this several times on the show, it feels like that social media needs some regulation, right? Like, I just don't know what the correct avenue is that uh, makes this, um, th that makes a regulation without huge implications to free speech. Like, right now, you don't have a right to post on Facebook. In fact, Facebook could decide that, you know, all portly gentlemen with with uh, long gray hair from Missoula, Montana, can no longer uh, post on on Facebook, and I really have no argument against them. There's no free speech implication to that because I don't have the right to 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 put something on Facebook. And in fact, Facebook could announce tomorrow that they're only going to post, um, you know, uh, uh, non-political posts, and you would have absolutely no right uh, to no free speech right, at least, to sue Facebook for that purpose. So um, regulation probably needs to happen. I just I just don't think we're having enough public discussion. At in political circles, right? Uh, to maybe start figuring out where this goes, because I, I think the issue is too highly charged. And so, yeah, interesting discussions are going on. I also think that um, 
uh, uh, and, and, you know, by the way, lots of information about bills that have been proposed in Congress. One thing to remember, the proposal of a bill in Congress really means very little. Um, it's it, it, especially much less in 2020, right? Because legislation uh, uh, is very frequently introduced that, that doesn't go anywhere, doesn't get a hearing because of, of the nature of the political system. But where that's important is that the more ideas we generate by introducing legislation, discussing them, we can maybe find something that's going to help Help us do something about this grander problem. Well, on that note, taking in mind that this is only proposed legislation, <clears throat> this is CNET today on June 17th, social media firms could be sued for censoring political speech under new bill. U.S. Senator Josh Hawley claims big tech companies, quote, have used their power to silence political speech from conservatives. Um, I really think this is sort of like a horse that gets flogged and beaten, but maybe not actually anything done about kind of in the same way that the, the media gets beat up a lot, that, that the media is terrible. Um, but we're not seeing, you know, regulation that is really changing the game. Um, there's issues like copyright and then also the communications decency act. And like I mentioned in that previous article too, there's like really serious bad issues with horrific content online and how, are companies going to be held accountable for that? Should they? Can they? And and how does this? How do we deal with this as a society? Um, and and so in, on issues of copyright, communications, decency act. I mean, politicians don't want to break the internet, right? They don't want to. I mean, they may gripe about Silicon Valley, but they don't want to destroy Silicon Valley. This is a huge, you know, economic engine uh, for the economy, for the nation, and the world. So. Anyway, I think we're going to continue to hear more about this, but I don't think that's going to have uh, immediate implications in terms of like becoming a law. But here is something that's that's significantly different uh, in terms of uh, of the election and uh, you know media literacy, the landscape. Uh, this is an article from Mashable today, and the article is titled "President or Just Trump Ran Attack Ads Against Twitter, Snapchat, and Oh, Not Facebook." And so one of the things that Facebook is doing um, is that they have this advertising archive. And if you want to go way back in time to the, you know, circa before November 2016, when we're talking about, you know, presidential elections and ads and all these kinds of things, and then it's a lot that's come out since then, <clears throat> you know, it, it still is the case that there are people who will see a Facebook ad, like maybe Jason's formal uh, sweats or whatever, you know, and we wouldn't in a previous time have had a way to see that. Well, now if it's a political ad, Facebook is putting all of them into a library that lets researchers and others be able to see them. And this is, I think, needed because, you know, in terms of advertising and what legally people can do, I mean, when something's in a newspaper or it's on a billboard, there's there's public visibility and transparency to that that, you know, did not exist prior to the, the presidential elections. And so <clears throat> in this, uh, these were, were ads that were run for a very short time, uh, but they do actually include um, a uh, example of um, uh, of both a an ad run on Facebook again against and they're to raise funds for the Trump campaign, uh, but saying, you know, contribute to us. We've got to make a statement here. We've got to shut down these um you know, here's the quote. Twitter is interfering in the 2020 election by attempting to silence your president. They want to make it as difficult as possible for President Trump to win in November. The fake news media has begun working hand in hand with liberal platforms like Twitter to wrongly censor 
conservative voices. And there's a similar thing that they ran for Snapchat. So what I would say to this is positive from the standpoint that Facebook has an, an advertising archive. I don't think I'm going to be looking at this with my sixth graders, but we do need students to understand political messaging, propaganda, certainly advertising. And I think it is positive for our society and the world that we have a greater level of transparency. It's not a perfect world, but it's better than we were pre-2016 election to be able to see what's going on with Facebook. So any thoughts there? Well, yeah, and I mean, that that also excites me, too, as a political scientist, right? It isn't super interesting. Like, I, there are, there are large document uh, archives where you can go back and see signage and speeches and uh, unofficial political media from, you know, like, say, the, the, the 80 presidential election, which was Carter v. v. Reagan. And, like, and this would be important, right? In fact, that, that's been one of the criticisms of the last 25 years about a lot of digital media is that if it disappears, Peers, it's oftentimes gone for good, and you know, there is historical value, if nothing else, in, in getting archives to that. But it still doesn't. And this is the problem, right? I feel like that Facebook keeps, you know, trying to say, "But we've got this." Where it's it's almost like a redirection play to try to get you to ignore the fact that there are clearly still significant issues with the Facebook platform. And you know, um, I do think it's interesting that uh, the core of that article was that there there was. Um, you know, some criticism of, of major platforms when Facebook wasn't on there. And yet there seems to be at least a, I'm not sure of a universal agreement, but a significant groundswell of support for trying to uh, nudge Facebook into, you know, changing practices or changing their ways. So I guess I'll go back to my, my favorite uh, phrase to talk about everything as it evolves is we'll see, right? Uh, coming right. to a theater near you. That's right. Hey, we've got a few more live viewers that have joined us. We want to remind everybody you can see our show notes, including the ones we will not have time to talk about. Uh, we started just a little bit after the top of the hour, so we, maybe we'll go a few minutes beyond, but you can find those at edtechsr.com slash links. And we would also welcome anybody to say hello in either your Facebook live comment feed or on YouTube live. We can see those comments and it's always interesting and exciting to see who happens to be viewing. And if you want to ask a question, you can do that. So. Dr. Neifer, where shall we go next in our limited amount of time that, that we have? Well, two articles from last week that I want to just pick up quickly, in part because you're going to see more of these types of articles. And I do think that uh, thinking through this, and especially if you work in, in any facet of education, K through higher ed, there will be discussions like this. But first, great article from The Verge on June 3rd that AMC Theaters warns of, they call it substantial doubt about the future of, of, of their, their enterprise uh, as the pandemic uh, 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 continues to, to absolutely decimate our economy. And one of the things that they talk about is that they really can't open up in a way that they perceive as safe in light of CDC guidelines and you know, part of the problem here is that, you know, the longer we are, uh, longer people don't trust coming in. And that's part of the process here. Like, even if uh, uh, there are abilities from a legal standpoint to open up without implications from a county, state or, or federal public health official, um, that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that at least half, if not more, of Americans would be leery to do something like hang out for two hours in a not socially distanced theater 
um, you know, with, with or without masks, um, that it might really call the movie theater industry into question. And there have been all sorts of, of, of interesting implications to this. Uh, they're talking about changing the standards for the Oscars, the 2021 Oscars, because uh, it requires a release in a theater to qualify for an Oscar nomination. And they're talking about ways of going around that for the first time even though many, many, many traditional Hollywood bigwigs, Martin Scorsese is an example of this, has criticized the kind of home theater movement and especially the you know tiny screens that, that come on our devices. Um, that is an implication of that. But, you know, movies have gone down in popularity in the last 15 years. And as long-form television has started to replace that, right, well-written series, oftentimes on cable, substantial investment in writing and acting talent, um, I, I, I'm not saying that movies will go away, right, but their place in our larger cultural zeitgeist might change. And that is an implication of COVID. And then the flip side, um, Bloomberg reports on May 29th that the SAT and ACT, which were basically canceled this past spring, um, are uh, talking about if they fit in the future world, not because the, uh, testing in a pandemic, it's because a lot of colleges and universities have decided that SAT and ACT scores will not be necessary for admission for the uh, upcoming freshman class in, in fall 2020. And that may continue if next year those that testing is not possible and they can't find a socially distanced alternative or a digital alternative. And again, it, the pandemic didn't, didn't do this, right? I mean, obviously it created a, an opportunity point to discuss it, but the merits of standardized testing for college admissions have been in question for, for really since the beginning of these requirements and major, uh, uh, major college and university systems admissions departments have already moved away uh, uh, from ACT and SAT requirements, either making them optional or not or, or, or not even asking for these scores. But again, super interesting. And I think you're going to see a lot of these discussions, especially as it relates to K through higher ed education and all of its many forms uh, in the coming weeks, months and years. I want to comment on that AMC theater article. One of the things we, of course, mentioned on the show is that we are looking at, at tech news through an educational lens. So let's think about th that through an educational lens. So AMC theaters is saying they're having trouble imagining how they can follow CDC guidelines and re return to business as normal or just even return to business. What a challenge we have in schools especially in large schools. I mean, I do not see how large schools are going to maintain any semblance of normalcy in terms of numbers of students in the building, in classrooms at the same time. One of the phrases that I have heard in the past couple of weeks is germ cohorts. Have you heard this, Jason, where you have a smaller group in school right. that would basically say, okay, we're not going to be socially distanced for this class. But in order to try to protect ourselves, we're going to basically kind of stay as a cohort and not, you know, we're going to limit the amount of mixing that we're doing across the school. Man, this is just going to be exceptionally challenging. 
And part of the reality, and I don't know how different this is for private and independent schools, but with with parents paying and that expectation of value, I think, I, I, I don't know, perhaps private and independent schools might be under some additional pressure relative to public schools to to open face to face, but maybe not. I mean, how tough is it when your kids can't go to school and you and they're at home? You know, uh, obviously, there's a lot more people who are working from home, but that's also going to be changing as we move you know, further into the, the year and the phased uh, the phased opening. We, we do have to open the economy. Uh, we do have to, um, you know, continue to make money and, and continue to survive. And so. I just think that AMC article, when you think about schools, and I mentioned at the, op- at the opening of the show, this is our first week at school to have our, we call it Cassidy by the Lake, but it's our summer programs. And so we, you know, have lots of procedures. Our <clears throat> daughter uh, has been going, they call it power camp, but it's a, an exercise and weightlifting camp and just very different procedures that they're, they're having to follow. So um, it's, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And I'm, I'm thankful um, that we're having some time to be able to work through some of this in, in summer school, uh, you know, and we're, we're going to be watching our numbers, right? Oklahoma's made the national news, unfortunately not for, you know, a lot of good reasons, but um, we're going to be watching to see what our, what happens with our numbers because we've been one of those states that's really pushed on the gas to open up and, um, you know, apparently the global pandemic is still here. So if that's the case, uh, you know, there could be consequences, especially for indoor gatherings where, you know, folks stay together for a, a sustained amount of time. Right. And I will say I one of the great things about the fact that school board meetings have moved largely online. Right. Um, is that they're oftentimes broadcasting these these things on, on Facebook and YouTube. And I have virtually attended many school board meetings in the last couple of months because in 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 around Montana, because it's interesting. These discussions are interesting to me as both a participant in in, in the education field and also as a bit of a scholar of, of this area. And those are exactly the kind of conversations that are happening. You can't have social distancing with kindergartners. That's just not a reality. And uh, my boss had said this, uh, who has experience in all aspects of, of, of education, uh, classroom teacher through superintendent. And, you know, he said it's just not, it's, it's a no-go for, for younger students. It's just not the way it's going to work. And I think a lot of schools are giving it a, a good shot at trying to find ways to make it work out. But the bottom line is, is that, uh, and, and I encourage you, Listen to these discussions that are happening by policymakers in your district and in others, and you'll get a sense of how complicated this is. Absolutely. Yep. Hey, Sand Springs, Oklahoma is one school uh, that has been using StreamYard to, you know, stream their uh, board meetings. And I, I and there's there's a lot of ways there. The opera, you know, I don't know how how this is happening in Montana, but I mean, it's it hasn't been too many years that it was the you know first time ever Oklahoma City Public Schools live, you know, live streaming online. And we're all not going to be able to sit there and watch every board meeting. But being especially in this era of journalism uh, on the on the ropes, as it were, especially with local journalism, you know, opportunities for people who are interested to be able to get information, to be able to follow. We had a friend who. um I think it was uh, the the, the uh, Oklahoma City Council meeting, uh, but anyway, she attended and then you know shared on Facebook some things that she had had noticed and talking about candidates and voting and how important you know involvement is. So I think having greater access to 
the uh, the civic and, and democratic processes of our local communities, you know, is a is a good thing. And it's also things for us to talk about with students. What should civic engagement look like? Um, what opportunities do students have to make meaningful contributions even now to civic civic discourse and to dialogue and, and awareness of issues and things like that? There's a lot of potential for you know, even even high school students, possibly younger, but especially high school students, college students to make some meaningful uh, contributions. And that could be in in doing things like uh, attending, you know, virtual meetings and sharing articles and thinking about writing and and voice. This should be a golden time for student voice. Obviously, I mean, and it, it, it's a time to listen, but it's also a time to speak. And I think it's a time to definitely as educators be thinking about how we are empowering students to be responsible with their voice, to be able to listen to others, but also to understand that their voice matters and their words matter. And, you know, there's a lot of opportunities that we're going to have and the digital environment that we're in makes that, um, yes, somewhat more perilous with things that can happen and content and, and, and things like that, but also, there's just a lot more possibility and potential for students to use those tools in good ways. And that's part of what we're here to do, right, as educators. So we might have time for another article or two. Do you want to hit anything else before uh, we geek of the weekend? Um, 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 yeah, what, just a quick one from last week. Uh, Android 11, the next version of Android, has been released in beta to consumers. And if you have a select number of phones, the Pixel phones, obviously, Pixel 2 through the modern Pixel phones, uh, you can update by going to, um, there's a Verge article from June 10th that tells you about how to do that. But obviously, don't do this on your primary phone unless you, you know, like dealing with bugs. But a lot of interesting things in Android 11. And, um, you know, I, uh, if you are uh, part of the Android faithful as I am, then uh, uh, new interesting stuff happening um, in Android phones. So a uh, great article from The Verge about all the announcements about Android 11 and then an opportunity to install it on a select number of newer Android phones. I'll do a couple shout outs to our chat room and then one more article. Uh, Peggy George uh, mentions this live binder that Susan Brooks Young created uh, about the from the Santa Cruz Leadership Summit. And so she is going to share that link with us. And uh, actually, Peggy, if you if you haven't tweeted that, if you could tweet that, that would actually be good. StreamYard is great. I guess I can get this that from the from the Twitter. Um, it doesn't allow us to click on those, although we can show them. Um, so that's excellent. And then also uh, shout out to John Blake, who is uh, with us and is uh, participating in our chat there. And uh, glad to have you join and glad to know that you are here. Um, the last article I'll mention to do an Apple article, you know, because sometimes if you let him, Jason will share lots of Google, lots of Chrome, and I do love that stuff. But hey, baby, you know, we got the Apple Watch going right here. It's going great, by the way. Um, so this last article is from Ars Technica uh, today on the 17th of June. And this is pretty fascinating. Why one email app went to war with Apple and why neither one is right. And the article is talking about uh, an email app, which wouldn't sound like it would be that revolutionary, but it comes from uh, the company Basecamp, and their app is called Hey. 
uh, H-E-Y, and it's an e- a, quote, email tool that eschews tradition to offer a better experience for a certain type of user. But you have to pay a $99 annual subscription fee, and you don't pay that through Apple. And so this is all about the Apple tax, where Apple is, you know, basically taking, it used to just be a solid 30%. I think it varies now. Netflix pays less. But it's very interesting how certain, you know, services, uh, Dropbox, you know, Netflix, um, you know, end up, you know, not paying this tax because they're broadcast apps, I guess. But then Spotify is, is in the mix with all this. And so um, obviously Apple provides a tremendous amount to its developers. Uh, we're not going to talk about it, but, you know, Jason's mentioning the ARM processors and what's going to be coming up at the developer conference concerning iMacs. And man, I'm excited about that. Um, it's, you know, the, the, the potential to have super fast processors that are cooler, smaller, and maybe even cheaper is a pretty exciting thing. But anyway, um, Apple continues to create some controversy. I personally am very thankful that the ecosystem is moderated to have a reference back to what we were talking about earlier with the Communications Decency Act. Um, I don't want an unregulated app store. It would be a freaking nightmare. And, and Google, even though theirs is moderated too in different ways, has lots of challenges. And we'll talk about some of those articles from time to time about malware apps and things that get by, you know, the folks that are checking for security things, et cetera. So interesting article, a lot of different issues. Uh, Jason, when is your Apple app coming out that you've been, I think, working in the basement nonstop for, for two months on? Is that going to be? Uh- published next month. Uh, sadly, I think it's going to have to be pushed down the road in light of, of, of global issues. But um, uh, yeah, I, I still keep a close eye. And I will say one of the things I'm thinking about doing is I do have a, a, an old Mac Pro that uh, has been around for a long time. And um, I, I have shared a couple of times in the past the Luke Miani YouTube channel, which is about refurbishing older Macs to make them kind of with modern specs. And there is apparently a really inexpensive set of updates you can do to make it pretty equivalent to a modern day uh, iMac. And so in part because I like tech projects and I'm pulling things apart. And I actually this weekend I'm going to take this uh, uh, this old uh, um um, uh, iPod mini. So this is a 2004 iPod mini and I'm going to pull it apart and add in an, an SD card adapter to it, a new battery. And, uh, and I, uh, I've been playing around with that as a, a kind of a little tech project on the weekends. Maybe that will be my way back to the Apple ecosystem. But when Starlink comes, Jason, Spotify shall come to the, the family cabin. So that's true. Anyway, yeah. There'll be a we'll, stopgap measure that will take you through the interim before. Yeah, absolutely. E- before Elon saves us. <laughs> nice. All right. Well, let's geek of the week. It. I'll go first. Uh, this is a quick one. Um, I think I mentioned him in the past, but Paul Anderson, uh, uh, former Montana teacher of the year, Montana, uh, biology teacher runs bozemanscience.com, which is also a very popular YouTube channel and, uh, has uh, tens of thousands of hits on each video, if not more, and many, many, many subscribers. Uh, he updated an old screencast that, or an old YouTube video that actually was my go-to 
screencast or how to screencast video and so many great tips in this, but he recently released a new version of that video, how I make screencasts. And Paul has great production value in light of the fact that it's just using home equipment and utilizing uh, interesting pieces. But Paul did update that. I put a link in the show notes. And then also if you are in, in any way, a science teacher, have a kid that's taking science or are interested in science, bozemanscience.com, excellent website. And I am enamored with how great uh, Paul is at preaching great uh, digital uh, technology enhancements in the classroom. You all just have some pretty awesome people up there in Montana. Well, not too bad. I'm going to actually just do one geek of the week, which may have not happened for months. Uh, but my geek of the week is a June 30th free webinar from KQED. Uh, it's called Help Students Fight Misinformation One Click at a Time. And this is going to be held on Zoom. Uh, the description is learn how to analyze and evaluate online information from KQED science. Jasmine's Garnett. As a social media specialist, Jasmine will take you through her steps in combating misinformation. Then you'll practice identifying credible social media posts and get resources to teach your students the skill. And in addition to highlighting that, I would note for everyone that she is not using the words fake news. Um, that is a, I don't know if pejorative is too strong, but that is a very laden term. And so the terms that I certainly prefer and recommend, um, it's, I think it's very appropriate to talk about the polluted information environment we have today. Um, there's a great book that was released recently that's free called You Are Here. It talks about the information pollution environment, but talks about, you know, disinformation, misinformation, malinformation. It looks fantastic. So free webinar. Check it out. Uh, coming up on June 30th. Great. Thanks, Wes. Well, that's the end of the textuation room for this evening. Wes, where can people find you on the Internet? Well, I am W. Fryer on the Twitters and my blog, speedofcreativity.org. I put up a new post thinking about planning uh, academically and for educational technology. Uh, that's speed of create in the fall. Uh, that is at speedofcreativity.org. And if you'd like to check out some of the Minecraft camp stuff, including daily photos, we've got our camp counselors. They're taking hundreds of screenshots uh, from our from our camp, which are pretty amazing. We had pig races two days ago, and it's pretty cool to see a lot of kids putting carrots on a fishing rod and racing pigs around. You know, anyway, these are the things we do in, in 2020 when we're remotely at, at summer camp. Uh, you can find that at mdtech, M-D-T-E-C-H dot Cassidy dot O-R-G. How about you, Jason? Are you at all online besides tonight? Uh, Twitter is my primary way of connecting with other educators, Tech Savvy Teach, although I am thinking about maybe moving towards something that's closer to my name, even though the Tech Savvy Teacher name has been with me for a long, long time. I am thinking about maybe going something closer to my identity. I wish... Uh, I think, oh, be, bread baking, sourdough bread. I mean, the new, the new no, pivot? actually, just my actual name. And the, the Twitter uh, handle I really want is knife n e i f. But uh, this, the, we we talked about this a long time ago. But Twitter was gonna was gonna eliminate accounts that were inactive, and they're the the person that that has n e i f. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's not even his right name, apparently, but it hasn't tweeted in, to, in like literally 10 years. And so I was hoping they would give up this thing. I would love to get knife back or uh, not back. Love to get knife because that is actually uh, what kids used to call me in the classroom is my nickname in high school. But uh, 
Uh, but for now, Tech Savvy Teach, I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, www.ncc.org. And I would also to remind you, the Mountain Moot, mountainmoot.com, great free educational technology conference in July. And I hope to be presenting uh, several times there along with uh, my MTDA partner in crime, Mike Agustinelli, and maybe some of our teachers. But this is not about me. It's not about Wes. This is the EdTech Situation Room. It's about Everyone and all of us, all at the same time. You can come here on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central, sometime in the middle of the night, UTC. Uh, we broadcast live over StreamYard to YouTube and Facebook, so feel free to check us out live. We love to have people in the chat room chatting back with us as Wes moderates our chat room and, and, and puts comments throughout our, our time. If you can't do that, no worries. We are wherever finer podcasts are aggregated in your life, or you can go to our YouTube channel uh, to find uh, uh, broadcast copies, old episodes of the podcast, or you can go to our website edtechsr.com. You can download show notes. You can look at, look at all the links. You can even download tiny audio copies of that handcrafted by Dr. Fryer. But we hope to see you next time on the Edtech Situation Room. Stay safe, stay savvy, and we hope you have a great night. Thank you. Good night, everybody.